0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Veterans in Ag podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike DeSop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. Our guest this week is Sawyer Clark. Sawyer is a former Army Intelligence Officer and the Director of Asset Management at Goldleaf Farming. In this capacity, Sawyer leads a team that farms about 5,800 acres of pistachios, almonds, and dates, all the way from Northern California to Yuma, Arizona. Since its inception six years ago, Goldleaf has grown to 85 full-time employees, 27 farms, and more than 12,000 acres. From his time growing up in Oregon, farming blueberries and hazelnuts, to a short but meaningful career in the Army, Sawyer never really struggled with a lack of purpose like many veterans. Sure, he had several what's next moments, but that uncertainty, at least to me, never really seemed to linger much for him. Before leaving the Army, a small side hustle, selling ammunition from his apartment, seemed like a great way to explore business. Next was a stint at Stanford, for his MBA, where he spent less than three months wondering what might be next before landing a job at Goldleaf, even before graduating. There were so many great lessons learned from Sawyer's early career and the unique aspects at Goldleaf and their business that we decided to make this interview into two episodes. Enjoy this first installment that dives deeper into Sawyer's background before Goldleaf. I grew up uh
1: town of 5,000 people and, you know, outside of Salem, Oregon and um, farming there and kind of, I think we'll probably get into some parts of this, but find my way from rural Oregon to college in Southern California and Army ROTC and then um, into the Army as an intelligence officer for kind of a short uh, a short period of time. Um, and then kind of stumbled into business school and ran back into the ag world uh, via uh, a startup called Goldleaf and a, and a founder who had graduated a couple years ahead of me. And, and that was a point where I was like, oh, maybe ag is something I want to kind of get back into, or, or maybe my familial history and cultural history could be useful as a professional or as an adult. Um, so uh, here I am. And, uh, I, you know, my day job now is kind of a mix of uh, investing and in acquisitions for new farms. Um, Uh, leading the team that operates about uh, half of gold leaf acreage about half the acres we farm and all focus on a a couple crops Um, and then also the third piece is looking ahead what's what's um, what areas of the country are going to be suitable for our crops in 10 20 30 years Um, and that's mostly water which in california is a big deal where we're mostly based um, and but also weather a little bit so that's kind of the full arc
0: yeah now I appreciate the the context and the overview. Let let's step into the the historical and familial and cultural kind of upbringings on the farm in Salem. What did you guys grow? What kind of memories do you have of that did it or did it not sort of cement this love of ag in you or or not?
1: Yeah, it definitely didn't. Um if you ask my family, <laughs> uh, they'll say that I was the kid they thought was going to grow up and turn the farm into a Walmart. Uh, so I didn't I didn't obviously love it. Um but we did, so we grew mostly blueberries um, and we had, uh, when I was little, some of my first memories are um, coming home after, it must have been preschool because it was a half day. Preschool and like holding the end of the stake so my dad could like walk out the rows like marking the field. Um, and so, you know, the rest, most of up until like high school was mowing blueberries, picking blueberries, pruning, spraying. Um, and, it, you know, it was 20 acres right so um, back then that was uh, it, when we started that was a lot of blueberries for the the Willamette Valley now that's nothing and that was part of the reason why in high school my parents shifted to hazelnuts so um, from blueberries to hazelnuts in and, um, and similarly hazelnuts were kind of new uh, 15 20 years ago uh, in in Salem um, and in the Willamette Valley now they're not now there's thousands tens of thousands of acres and big big farming groups and it's become a much more developed industry um so those were the two main kind of cash crops we grew we had some we always had between you know five and twenty head and mostly beef cattle just kind of because my dad always liked having cows um I mentioned we had some chickens and you know the goat herd got big at one point um, so just kind of a I, I think of as kind of a typical 80 acre family farm with 20 to 50 that were like dedicated to like a, a crop and the rest kind of hillside and forest ground was
0: for livestock and, um, you know, 4-H projects, stuff like that. Why the either switch or incorporation of hazelnuts from blueberries?
1: Yeah, I, I um, kind of alluded to it. I think the the, the short answer is, um, the, like the, the big boys came, which meant the price per pound fell. So oh. it basically became non-economic to have a 20 acre farm. And so we went from, uh, you know, I think we started with five acres maybe and like slowly planted out and, you know, and basically did it all in house. Um, when I joined Gold Leaf, and, uh, you know, after, so fast forward, you know, 15, 20 years later, and we would, we would talk about planting an orchard and all of our farmers would talk about like having a vendor do the irrigation. I was like, what are you talking about? Cause I, you know, right, right. And we just glued huh? PVC pipe in the back. Yeah. Like we didn't have a vendor come like put in the irrigation system. Right. Now it's much, much smaller system, but like, that's what we just did it all. We rented a trencher and like, so, um, but what happened was as more and more blueberries were planted in the White Valley and other parts of the U S um, the, the price per pound came down, which just meant you had to be at bigger scale, um, to, uh, to make it profitable. And, and we we over that time we shifted varieties to try to kind of stay ahead of that curve. We did some hand picking instead of machine picking to try like, so, um, you know, we kind of kept trying to find a niche that where the small players could be competitive. <clears throat> and um, those niches just started running out basically. So, and at the same time, the hazelnut industry in Oregon was standing up uh, mostly because oh. of um, tissue culture propagating of blight resistant hazelnut trees. So once those trees became available at scale, then um, that became an option to grow hazelnuts in a way that typically hazelnuts would grow up and you get the blight and they die. And so it, we couldn't really like, but the, the new varieties were resistant. And so you could actually farm them. So my dad kind of saw that coming and thought, I think that's where I want to be next. Mm-hmm. And hazelnuts uh, in most tree crops compared to fruit just way less work so he kind of jokingly 15 years ago 20 years ago called it his retirement crop because right it's you know fresh picking fresh berries and getting them on cool days and getting them to market and pruning and spraying and it's just a lot compared to you know mow irrigate a little bit prune in the winter wait for the nuts to fall sweep them up they're shelf stable they don't have like contamination concern it's just
0: a way less stressful farming operation So as soon as you got old enough to leave the farm and go to school, you did basically. That's it. Okay, that's
1: exactly right. And I, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I was pretty sure I didn't want to farm. Um, (laughs) I thought like business, like you know, my naive like eighteen year old, like I thought business was like what people went into when they didn't like have anything they cared about. (laughs) You know, like it's like the default. (laughs) Um, yeah, uh, and uh, so I went to uh, you know, went to undergrad and um uh, I don't think I had a major declared or maybe i don't I don't know, but um uh, but I actually got to do a little bit I did one semester at Colorado State University mm-hmm. and um, and I was undeclared major, took all the basics, enjoyed the college thing, but realized that it was gonna like it was gonna be fun, but not particularly purposeful to just what I thought I was like, I was just go to college and play for four years and then figure something out. But I had a bunch of buddies there who were in army ROTC and a few other ROTC programs, but the army guys were the ones that I, that, you know, I knew the best. Um, And I'd always kind of thought about the military, you know, growing up in, in, you know, rural America. And, um, you know, you watch band of brothers and saving private Ryan and black Hawk down and, I had several buddies from high school who uh, would either end up enlisting in the Marines or the army or other forces, you know, both my grandparents, my grandpas were in World War uh, too. Um, But there, outside of that, there wasn't a bunch of like military in my family. Um, there was basically nobody uh, other than my grandparents that I was close to that were, had ever served. So it wasn't like something that I was particularly accustomed to or, or, um, exposed to. Um, but I always thought like, Oh, that'd be, that could be interesting. Um, I thought for a while I would be fun to be a pilot. I, in high school, I talked to the air force a little bit and, um, I actually went on a flight. I had a family friend who was training to be a pilot. so I went. And he's like, Oh, you want to fly? Like, come up, like, I'll take you on my little Cessna or whatever. And we flew to like bend Oregon and back and, and landing. I just vomited all over the plane. And, I <laughs> like, and I always, I always knew I was motion sick. <laughs> But I was like, I don't know if I want my job every day to be something that I'm just, like, I might throw up again today. Like I don't, even if I made it through the training, like I just didn't know if that was gonna be, Fair. that good of a setup for me. Yeah. Uh, so that I kind of was like, well, maybe I won't fly. Uh, and but so I went to Colorado State and still kind of didn't know what I was gonna do and had these Army buddies and, um, and then uh, ended up transferring to Pepperdine University, which is a little school and outside of Los Angeles. Um, and they have an ROTC program through UCLA. It's kind of an extension school. And so I um, signed up to be uh, an ROTC cadet there and, and um, uh, just wanted to explore the military. And I, I would tell people, and I think this was this is still true, that uh, it was either going to be a, a great internship, a great experience, a great way to serve for a time um, and get some interesting experiences, or it was going to be the start of a career. Uh, I didn't know which at the time. But I thought either outcome was going to be good.
0: Can you maybe share a story of an experience or something you learned in those years in the intelligence field of the Army that you still carry with you today?
1: The the biggest thing that stands out is that um, like at the end of the day, every job is a people job. And I say that in the context of kind of two areas. One, in the military, there's um, tremendous hierarchy. Like, it's very clear who is supposed to do what, whom legally has to report to whom, like how the orders flow. Um, but what I saw in the army is that a lot gets done on relationships, uh, you know, either outside the chain of command or with civilians or with supporting or um, or even, you know, in a different direction the hierarchy would suggest and that like in all those roles and all those positions there's a human who who you know has their own needs and desires and motivations and if you take the time to engage at a human level regardless of of rank or whatever you can have a much greater impact And, and things can just be way easier just through relationships and and then like coming out of the army I actually I kind of when I headed into business school and thought about what what I wanted to do and what afterwards, again I had no idea. Every time I go to school, I have no idea what I want to do. <laughs> if that's a theme. Um, but I I spent a lot of time trying to develop people leadership skills because I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew there'd be people there. Um, but the the army was the place where I saw that most clearly. Is you know the the E six or E seven, who you know maybe doesn't have as much authority as uh, you know the E eight or an E nine or an O three or whatever but knows who to talk to get stuff done. Um, and, and it's not manipulative. It's not shady or illegal. They just, you know, someone will answer the phone when they call because they need some help and, you know, they've been helpful in the past and it's just, it just, it just lubricates through challenges. Um, so that's always something I think. And and I always tell people is, is, you know, at the end of the day, like, it's all people, whether you're in finance or you're in the army or you're in the Marine Corps, or you're um, a farmer or you're whatever, like everyone you interact with is a person first and then they're in a role.
0: At what point did you realize and start to make the transition out of the army?
1: It was pretty, uh, maybe a year and a half in or so. I okay. Really I, you know, quick. cause I, yeah, <laughs> well, so I didn't have an undergrad scholarship, so I missed somehow. I missed the window to get an ROTC scholarship, so I was contracted, but wasn't like my school wasn't being paid for for undergrad, which meant I only owed three years of active duty. Typically, ROTC cadets own four, and um, academy cadets, I think this is still true, typically own uh, have five. Maybe that's changed, but it's I was like the shortest contract because they didn't the army didn't pay for my undergrad, so I only had three. So there was always like, you know, there was always an option to never make. 03, because you know, typically, like in the army, you become a captain at year four. But it was like I don't even, I can fulfill my contract, and cert, like I only, like odds are I won't make it. Like unless I decide to keep going beyond my contract, right. and right. so that was that would put me in a weird spot. Most people, most officers, many of them didn't even know you could have a three year contract because everybody just got scholarships, and so they thought the min was the minimum was four. Um, but I had a three year contract, so I knew that like that decision was coming quick. I mean, after six months of training at army intelligence school and then a PCS and then getting your feet on the ground, you're one year in. And it's like, well, two years from now, if I'm not going to be in the army, like that's coming fast and where are we going to live and what are we going to do? And so that short window kind of made me have to think pretty quickly, like, do I want to keep doing this or not? In a, in a way that it just kind of drove that decision point sooner. Um. So, you know, maybe a year, year and a half after getting to Georgia and being married for a while and settling in I, I, and, you know, the army or the, our unit was being downsized and stuff. And it wasn't, it wasn't clear. I, there wasn't, I, there was a couple of times where I tried to like, oh, can I, you know, move units or switch with somebody or talk to branch or like just try to, and I couldn't really make any of those things stick. So then I started thinking, all right, what is, what does life outside the draft of the army look like? Um, and, and the, uh, while I was in the army, because there wasn't much going on in the, in the kind of the day job, right. The garrison, you know, day army, I started, um, working on an e-commerce business kind of side hustle that just kind of started with, um, the idea of, um, there are for hunters, there are parts of the country where you have, you can't use lead projectiles to Mm -hmm. hunt waterfowl or deer because of you know pollution or Mm -hmm. or predators they're worried will get polluted um but there there were many many places online where you could buy uh, ammunition that was didn't have lead in it it was expensive Mm -hmm. and hard to find so i i i just like made a website basically on one of these you know website makers that was a lead-free ammunition focused retailer run out of like the bathtub in our apartment you know it's just like there's pictures of just like (laughs) stacks of ammo and uh you know, my wife was very gracious about that because it ended up taking over our bedroom at one point too. But, <laughs> you know, basically on, you know, 6 to 8 p.m. and, you know, some Saturdays when we weren't training or whatever, we'd, we'd ship boxes and the FedEx guy would come by every day and just, you know, it never turned into a big success. The As you can imagine, the lead-free ammunition market is not uh, is not a massive industry. It's yep. very niche. Yep. Um, but as, you know, that that gave me something to kind of pour some professional or intellectual energy into while well, I was decommissioning, you know, units and and getting equipment sent around during the day and um, and that gave me a, that was when I was like, oh, business isn't just for people
0: who don't, you know, can't figure out anything else to do. And it was through this kind of early e-commerce side hustle that going to Stanford came to purview uh, of what to do next.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> That's, that's the very condensed version. Yeah. But so um, basically, yeah, that was like the, Oh, business is interesting. Maybe there's something I like this is kind of creative, but if people like it, you're validated through sales basically. And like, then you can do it for more people. And like, I like that kind of beneficial cycle where before I thought business was just, like I said, for people who didn't know what they wanted to do or wanted to be rich. And I didn't think either of those things were something I wanted to be. So it changed my perspective on what business could be or what business is. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'm a junior military officer. I think I'm gonna get out of the army now. What what do we do? I am not qualified to do anything else. Like, oh I'll go to business school, right? That's that's what everybody does. You go to business school. Right. So took the GMAT, applied to a bunch of business schools, um, got rejected at all of them, uh, except except Oxford, actually in the UK. And so I was gonna <laughs> go to Oxford. And yeah. we thought that would just is a one-year program. So we're looking forward to that adventure. Um was, and I had a few months between my army commitment being done and school starting. Um, so uh, was just kind of like, you know, PCS, left the army PCS had a few months and moved back to the West coast and an army buddy of mine who had met in college, actually uh, his dad basically said, Hey, why don't you come just like kind of free intern and job shadow me and, and this company that I'm setting up in, in Seattle, Washington. And I was like, okay. And he's like, Oh, we have a family office and I'm, I'm retiring from private equity. And we're now we're making investments into some things and it would just be good experience for you to get a taste of the business world before mm. you go to business school. Mm. And so I said, okay, like they, he was a good buddy of mine. I didn't know what private equity was. I didn't know what a family office was. I didn't, I didn't realize like I didn't know anything about anything. And, uh, so I would, you know, fly to Seattle once a month, spend a couple of days up there, do some remote work for them. And just like kind of looking back now, kind of silly things like market research or like that I had no business conducting and like putting together basic like Excel models that I'm sure are embarrassing if I looked at them now, but just like, oh, <laughs> just kind of like a special projects guy who they wanted yeah. to help get an experience. And before I go to business school, um, that turned into, so after doing that for a couple months, they said, um, you know, we we think that, um, you know, you've been helpful and it's fun for us to pour into you. And we think you should come do this full time for a year and delay, defer your MBA and move up to Seattle and like actually become an employee as we start doing this. And, um, you know, that's, so I called, I drove home, you know, that night I was in Seattle and called my wife and said, hey, I think we got to move to Seattle. And uh, we were in Sacramento at the time. And you know, my wife has been great about this. even with the army and all this. Like, she's a she has a sense for like she has a sense for these things that are like, yeah, I think that's right. She's not the type that you know would would freak out about that. And um, so we did. So we moved to Seattle and deferred the MBA. I said to Oxford, like, hey, great, I'd love to come, but uh, give me a year. I'll come next year. Um, and we moved to Seattle, and um, I was still, I'm sure you know, it's East Seattle partners of the company I was working for. And it, it turns out it was the family office, um, for, um, uh, a gentleman who had been retiring from healthcare, private equity, um, and, um, wanted to, you know, kind of stand up their own little investment office to, to do real estate, to do some startups, to do, um, some car washes, just have a diversified mm-hmm. investment thing. And I didn't know what any of those words even meant when I went up there, you know, and, uh, <laughs> But really what it was, was, you know, them pouring into a young army buddy who I had, you know, aspirations, but very little experience. Um, and uh, that, that always be like, a, you know, that was a mark and kind of pivot yeah. point for my, my wife and I. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's one thing that I always, like, I look forward to doing more of is like giving, unlocking for people things that they can't unlock for themselves. Um, And I I want that to be a, 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 I hope that that's a legacy that I leave. Um, And, you know, this family wasn't the only group who'd done that. I can look back on football coaches and on parents and like, you know, but this was as an adult, this was kind of like, Hey man, there's a lot of people who took some time and, and and really changed the trajectory that I was heading on. Um, So then I reapplied to business school. Stanford put me on a wait list. I knocked my way in in the third round and I showed up and finally, you know, kicked down the door. Had to take the GMAT again, took a calculus awesome. class to get my math better, you know, just kind of fought. Um, and then finally got a chance to go. Did you
0: go straight from uh, out of the NBA into Gold Leaf? I did.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, um, and,
0: and how did that opportunity present itself? And why did you feel like that was the right place to step foot next?
1: Yeah. So it got to Stanford, everyone, you know, felt smarter than me, had better stories than me, you know, Uh, and (laughs) and as a veteran there, you know, there's, I don't know, there's 420, 430 MBAs per class, two year programs. There's like 800 MBAs at Stanford at a time. And uh, there's, I think about 5% veterans. There's maybe Mm -hmm. 20 veterans per class. Maybe that's a little different now, but. Um, and, you know, like you look at like even in the veterans, it's like, all right, there's the three SEALs, there's the two Navy pilots, there's the like, it's just like, right. there's four Green Berets who also have like, uh, you know, PhDs in philosophy, it's just like, holy right. smokes, like, right. where right. do you find these people, right. you know, right? and I'm like, well, I was an Intel kind of garrison for three years, and, you know, like, happy to be here. Uh, right. So that was always, I was always self conscious about that. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I just, it was, but more than that. It's just it was a cool place to get to go be and and uh, and learn for a couple of years. Um, and th- three months after starting there, uh, the the recruiting starts for the next summer's internships, basically. And they're all the big tech companies and all the consultants and all the normal and then so all the normal companies come and recruit and everybody, you know, interviews for that. And and there's also these kind of smaller recruiting like, you know, coffee chats and lunch discussions and um all that stuff and and I so I used the first couple of months to like tick off what I didn't want to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew what I sure. didn't want to do and that was I didn't want to be I didn't want to travel a ton just cuz I knew about family I was about to start hopefully. Wanted to stay on the west coast. Didn't really want to live in San Francisco or LA or maybe Seattle. I didn't want to have a little more space. Um didn't really want to be in strict finance or big tech like some of those were just kind of like yeah, I just doesn't feel like fit. So I was looking on the periphery for smaller stuff, um, or things more, you know, kind of rural focused or smaller community focused and was just LinkedIn stocking, you know, people, former graduates for anyone in agriculture one day. And, um, I found a lot of people retiring to vineyards in Napa, right. A lot of like 60 year olds who made their money and now are, uh, now are in agriculture. And, uh, but there was one guy, Jack McCarthy, who is, uh, I think two years ahead of me and was starting an ag company. I thought, Oh, that's different. Like I should give him a call. So we got lunch, you know, a week later or something pretty quickly. And, um, uh, he was like, Holy smokes. Like another Stanford guy, like grew up farming hazelnuts on the West coast, like, man, like, you know, and was in the army. So like, isn't going to, who gets rural America and like gets this stuff. Like that's pretty sweet. Um, and, uh, so I started working a little bit just for like, um, and I was thinking, Hey, like these people were farming at the time. It was like four people at Gold Leaf and like two farms and uh, they were 18 months old or, you know, and uh, no offices, no, you know, it was like the two founders and a like couple of part-time people, but I thought, Oh, this is, I might, this is a company that I, like might value uh, that I planted hazelnuts in high school. And then I, mm-hmm. you know, you know I drive tractors like I don't drive tractors, but at least I understand what that means. And why, right. Like, right. you know, I have right. some context. And um, right. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was, you know, three months after I started Stanford. So I interned the next year um, that summer and then accepted a, a full time offer for after school. Um, so pretty much, you know, my whole MBA, except for the first couple of months, were very much kind of heading towards Goldleaf. It just seemed like, yeah. um, you know, actually, I, I reflect on that lunch we had with Jack and I had right after I started school and my wife remembers this I don't but she tells me this happened that I came home and I walked in the door and said well I just found the company I'm going to work for and uh that w- I would say something like that so like it's, yeah. it's you know plausible yeah. but I think it was compared to um you know working at a tech company it just seems so different and so like oh that's that feels like something I could get excited about
0: it, it's it's surprising to me because in the first part of our conversation, you talked just about how much you were ready to kind of leave. You had these fond memories, but at the same time, it wasn't a profession you wanted to go into. You were ready to get out of there as soon as you could. When you were finishing out your time at Stanford and you knew what you didn't want to do, why did ag come back to the surface again of things, things and places mm. to consider?
1: Yeah. I think I think a couple of things, and these are a little bit like they're kind of like zoomed out or a little macro or a little heady a little bit, but like one of it was I looked around at my classmates, all these people who, you know, I'm pretty convinced are smarter than me and like none of them were doing ag. Some of them were mm-hmm. doing ag tech. There's like two or three that actually are good friends of mine who were like actually looking at like going into like ag, like production ag. Um, and, and then there was, you know, 415 others and there. And so <laughs> there was just like, Hey, like I might have a relative advantage and like a relative good career prospect. And okay. I want to stay on the West coast and I don't want to be in a big city. And, but, um but through Goldleaf, I saw like, I think this company is going to grow like there, there's legs here where it, you know, this type of farming is, will be able to overlay, you know macroeconomic research and consumer trends and climate change and efficient water management and human leadership, you know, in you know uh uncomfortable, you know, desert environments. And like, so there was some, there's actually kind of a lot of like similar like especially to Intel in the army, there's a lot of like uh research to drive action in uncomfortable places. Like that's fundamentally what a lot of the military mm. has been doing for the last couple of years. And um, so I think, I think I couldn't have put those into words at the time, but um, I think I just saw a way where like, Hey, what I, where I grew up, what I just kind of know how to do and the people who I interacted with my whole life, like those, I could use those, like those are valuable in yeah. this space in a lot of spaces it's just like like if i'd gone and worked at uh, you know google or i don't know, pick some tech or like no one would care that i planted hazelnut like it wouldn't be mad it wouldn't matter
0: yeah right yeah but, like
1: in a company like this like everyone's like oh interesting like i heard they do high density like yeah well we're trying like everyone's like right it's just right. A, it's, a, it's a part of the culture that is is fun for me to share and, and for people to care but i think also it's just a little more connective
0: it's funny how those early life experiences and they come back in some cases to be useful when you never would have thought they would have been yeah. useful to begin with. My, my example is my technical background is in, in ag engineering from A&M, mm-hmm. right? I had started as mechanical. I thought that, you know, this was, I thought mechanical engineering was all about building things and inventing and using your hands, right? And like two years into the program. You know, that's that's not what this is. <laughs> yeah. And so I want to do something that's maybe a little more down to earth and outside. And then mm-hmm. ag engineering kind of surfaced as what that might be. Mm. Fast forward seven years later, infantry like never touched ag or engineering following that. Yep. But you get out and like God sorts of sort of puts these things in your path that you know you can lean back on some of these past experiences to help you out today and today as i sit here now both with agd consulting but also ag sensor solutions ag engineering is all almost all i do yeah, now I yeah. have ag or engineering or some combination yep. of all of it and so but if you had asked me 10 years ago yeah you're going to use your ag engineering degree in a, a new novel we didn't know what ag tech was in 2007 i had no idea yeah yeah right right most people yeah. didn't mm-hmm. but it's just it's so interesting that that sort of hindsight you can sit back and say oh okay like i can see sort of why that shaped out the way that it did but i never would have anticipated it to be where it is today yeah based on that you know and so when you're describing that story it's reminding me of just my own personal experiences of man i couldn't have even thought of that let alone yeah. tried to plan for it I'll save the traditional conclusion and parting thoughts for the wrap-up to the second episode, but I wanted to make sure to highlight here that we haven't even scratched the surface yet of what Goldleaf is all about. This episode set the stage for that journey and was crucial for listeners to understand how Sawyer got here. So much of what Goldleaf focuses on ties directly into Sawyer's perspectives on business and people. I hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to tune into the next one where we explore the intricacies of gold leaf farming. Thanks for listening to another episode of the vets and ag podcast brought to you by AGD consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD consulting by visiting our website. Finally, If you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, agtech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike DeSalle, and until next time, stay frosty.